Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. This is the Rogers Brief for February 16th, 2023. I'm releasing this uh, on a Thursday evening. Usually I release these episodes either Friday or Saturday, but uh, tomorrow I'm going to be conducting a trial in provincial court. And so, and then after that, going off to coach basketball up in Spring Hill High School basketball. So I uh, had to get this out before that or else it wouldn't be until uh, Sunday probably before I could record this. So I wanted to get this out in particular because there's been some breaking news just yesterday. The head of the RCMP, the commissioner uh, of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, announced her resignation uh, slightly early. Uh, the normal term is a five-year term, which was coming up in a few months' time, but she's uh, stepping down early. So I want to talk about that a little bit. I'll... Uh, I'm going to talk about some Nova Scotia cases as well. One I mentioned a few episodes ago, this uh, Tweedy uh, appeal, which the Court of Appeal granted the appeal, the Crown Appeal at the time. Uh, this is a tragic uh, car uh, accident collision out of uh, Cape Breton near Sydney where a young girl was killed. And so that uh, appeal from the Crown was successful. I'm going to talk about that a little bit. Another case out of uh, Kentville, uh, involving two town councillors, allegations of conflict of interest. Uh, so that's been uh, that's been ongoing for a couple of years now, and it's uh, finally got a decision from the Supreme Court of Nova Scotia. And I'm going to talk about the uh, William Sanderson uh, case as well. That's uh, with the murder trial of the was soon to be medical student uh, William Sanderson in Halifax. It's a jury trial. It's been covered by the media quite a bit in Nova Scotia, and uh, so had closing arguments over the last couple of days and uh, instructions from the judge are taking place uh, today, Thursday, and the judge jury is going to go off to deliberate. So I'll talk about that a little bit. A few other uh, Nova Scotia situations and then some news stories from across the uh, country and uh, one that's sort of international. I'll, I'll get to those as well. Uh, just touch on some of them briefly, but uh, get to all your your legal news uh, that uh, is relevant for Nova Scotians, uh, some across the country and occasionally internationally. That's what I, I cover here in this uh, uh, in these videos. So the first thing I'll talk about is the Brenda Lucky resignation. And uh, by the way, I'm sure we'll be talking about this Sunday night with uh, Jordan Bonaparte and Paul Palanga on the uh, Nighttime podcast. And if you're interested, uh, some of the I was talking last week in the Rogers brief about uh, Lisa Banfield, spouse of uh, Gabriel Wartman, the, the gunman in the uh, April 18th, 19th, 2020 mass shooting in Nova Scotia. Uh, Miss uh, Banfield's uh, civil case against the RCMP, the uh, federal government filed a defense last week. We talked about that, Jordan Bonaparte, Paul Palango, and I on Sunday night. And that episode is now available both on uh, YouTube and as a podcast. So if you look up the Nighttime Podcast, click on the links that I've uh, posted on my Facebook and Twitter accounts as well. Uh, the Rogers Brief or Adam Rogers NS on Twitter. Okay, so I'm sure we'll be talking about Brenda Lucky. Uh, so some thoughts I had on this, and I was talking to uh, Chelsea Bird on uh, 6.30 uh, CHED in Edmonton this morning as well. So... Brenda Lucky was in the on the job for just under five years. Prior to that, she had been the uh, the head of the RCMP depot, the training center in Regina. So this uh, resignation wasn't planned. It was uh, unexpected. Uh, not 
terribly unusual for commissioners to have their terms renewed after five years, and Miss Lucky, uh, Brenda Lucky, was hard to say whether that was going to happen. There was some signs from the government that they may not have had great confidence in her, especially after the uh, Emergency Act inquiry uh, evidence from the Prime Minister. But uh, so, you know, I think this is a case where she jumped before she was pushed, in a sense. In the testimony she gave at the Mass Casualty Commission, she talked about Vision 150, which is uh, a plan that the RCMP had in advance of their 150th anniversary. And she seemed quite dedicated to that and, and very interested in the progress of that plan, which was addressing all these systemic issues. And so for her to step out before that comes to fruition, I think, is a sign that she really felt she needed to get out before she was pushed. Now, in the Mass Casualty Commission, and people that have been following along with my commentary will, will know this, I felt that she was really scapegoated on two sides in her... I guess, testimony there or her, how she was perceived. On the one hand, it was the Nova Scotia RCMP command structure that seemed to be really dropping the ball in the Mass Casualty Commission events and then the, the aftermath where they weren't able to communicate with the public. But along comes this uh, message, uh, you know, a, a note from Leah Scanlon, the communications officer, that uh, she felt Commissioner Lucky was really hard on the commanders and, you know, they were just doing their best and here's uh, mean Brenda Lucky telling them that they weren't doing so good. Well, that turned some of the attention, <clears throat> excuse me, from the Nova Scotia command structure to Ottawa and Brenda Lucky and some of the people around her. But to me, and I think people following the commission closely, it was clearly the Nova Scotia command structure that, where the problem was lying. But, and then you know, they were very happy to have that attention, that negative attention shifted to the national leadership. Uh, and the national leadership, Brenda Lucky and others, in my view, were asking legitimate questions, offering communications help, because communication was clearly a problem in the Nova Scotia command structure. But then, you know, they were happy to have her being scapegoated and blamed for that. On the other hand, I think the politicians, uh, Minister Bill Blair, Prime Minister Trudeau, we're both also happy to have the focus on Commissioner Lucky. You recall that the federal government had a plan to introduce uh, you know, gun control legislation. They brought that announcement forward uh, weeks ahead after, in the aftermath of the Nova Scotia mass shooting to try to generate support for their impending legislation, the pending legislation. And so you know, when that decision didn't go well and the uh, attention was, you know, starting to, the attention was start, starting to be, you know, negatively framed against the government, I think they were very happy to have the attention focused on Commissioner Lucky as well and her role in any alleged political interference. So, treated unfairly in a sense, certainly in the Mass Casualty Commission uh, inquiry and the evidence and situations related to that. Now, the Freedom Convoy might be another story. There was, as you recall, uh, people who were watching the Emergency Act inquiry proceedings, most, like CSIS, the Ottawa Police, Ontario Police, other people, uh, public safety uh, advisors, were all advising the government, the Prime Minister, to invoke the Emergencies Act. There was one person, and that was Brenda Lucky afterwards, who said that she felt there were policing uh, strategies and, and 
you know, things they could have done differently. But the problem was uh, she didn't raise that directly with cabinet when she had the opportunity to do so. She was in, uh, you know, a cabinet meeting where they were getting all this advice. She didn't raise her hand and say, hey, hang on a second, you know, going against the tide, certainly. It might have been a difficult or courageous thing to do under the circumstances, but she just didn't do it. And so the government didn't get that advice from the RCMP. And so I think that's not going to reflect great on her uh, personally and the RCMP as an organization. And that report, the Emergencies Act uh, Commission report, is going to be coming out uh, in the next few weeks, uh, potentially even sooner. And so, uh, you know, I think she's trying to get out in advance of that report and not be uh, so much in the hot seat when that comes out, and if, particularly if it's critical of her and the RCMP. So what's going to happen? The uh, you know she was supposed to be an agent of change. It's very difficult. You know it's a big ship to turn around. The RCMP is an organization, a bureaucracy. So the next RCMP commissioner, I wouldn't be surprised if there was there were calls to get an outsider. You know somebody with policing experience certainly, but also management and organizational structure experience that can do some reforming. Be interesting to see if you know the initiatives in Alberta potential initiatives in Nova Scotia to replace the RCMP with provincial police forces means that the next commissioner of the RCMP is going to be managing a reimagining of the RCMP. And so particularly if that's the case, if that's what the public sentiment is, if the government agrees, then to get somebody that's going to manage that, it would be a, a decline in numbers perhaps for the RCMP, but just a reimagining of the structure of it. I think that would be better to have somebody coming from outside the organization rather than somebody that's been raised and gone through the ranks and uh, you know is more uh, ingrained in the RCMP culture trying to do the same thing. All right, so uh, we'll talk about that more Sunday night with uh, Jordan and uh, Paul on the nighttime podcast. Uh, usually starts at 9.15 Sunday nights, live on YouTube and then later as a YouTube video and a podcast. So, okay. Next story. We'll go, get into Nova Scotia here. Uh, there was an appeal release, a decision released yesterday on the uh, Tweedy appeal. Tweedy is the driver of the vehicle who struck a young girl uh, near Sydney in Cape Breton, uh, killed her. Uh, he was uh, acquitted at trial by Justice Mona Lynch, and this was he was acquitted on the basis that. Uh, he, well, he said he thought he hit a deer, and uh, there was evidence that it, you know that she accepted that it was dark. He may not have seen exactly what was happening. There were lots of deer in the area. The road was bad, uh, so some questions about whether he would have understood that he hit somebody and should have stopped. Well, uh, the court of appeal after the appeal had indicated that they were going to. Um, allow the appeal from the Crown. Crown appealed this. So the the other circumstance was that he had some alcohol in his system, had been having a few drinks, uh, playing some um, darts uh, with a buddy of his. Not far from where he lived is where this took place. And so, but he, he left, he went past the accident, came back, was only tested uh, some four hours after the, uh, the you know, collision took place. And there was an expert called at the trial who extrapolated back to his blood alcohol level and there was a range and it depended on when he had his last drink just beforehand. And so 
all of that evidence, the expert evidence, seemed to suggest that it may have been below the uh, legal limit of 80, uh, 80 over 100, 80 milligrams and 100 milliliters of blood. And so, you know, the judge uh, took that into account when determining whether he was impaired at the time and all that, uh, because he was charged with impaired causing death. Also charged with uh, failure to stop at the scene of an accident. So the Court of Appeal, and this was uh, Chief Justice uh, Wood, uh, Justice Bourgeois, and Justice Derrick as the three-person, three-judge panel, talked about one thing was the impaired side, which was instead of using the expert evidence to extrapolate back to the time of the accident, okay, so he was tested at uh, 1.51 a.m., accident took place, collision took place at 9.42 p.m., so it was about just over four hours later. Well, the law is now that you can't be within two hours of, of you know, drive, within two hours of driving, you can't have over 80. There's a presumption in section 320.31 sub 4. These are all very new uh, laws in the criminal code. You know, people, have, people familiar with the old drinking and driving laws, things are much different now. The presumption is if you test after two hours so you're not allowed to have over 80 within two hours and it's prevented it's designed to prevent all these defenses of people that would go home and drink or they would drink just before and, and there was you know all of this expert evidence about what your uh, impairment level was at the time and it was a complicated calculation well it's much simpler now if you're within two hours of driving over 80 then you're just as guilty as you were if you had been over 80 at the time. And uh, if you're tested hours later, in this case, two hours past the two-hour time frame, then there's a presumption uh, so, uh, that you add five milligrams per 100 milliliters for every half hour of time afterwards. So in this case... He was tested at 151, blew 60, but you add those uh, five times four half hours back and you get to 80. So the Court of Appeal found that the uh, presumption in section 320.31 sub 4 uh, means that at the time or within the two hours that uh, Tweedy was impaired. Now, uh, the Crown wanted the Court of Appeal to just then enter a conviction. He was impaired, causing death. But the uh, Court of Appeal disagreed with that. They're sending it back to the trial judge to determine if he was uh, impaired uh, such that he... and impaired and also caused the death. All right? So there's some causation issues that the trial judge, the next trial judge, is still going to have to uh, grapple with. So second issue on appeal was the failure to stop the accident and the issue there was whether the trial judge had properly considered the possibility that Tweedy was willfully blind to the fact that he had struck a person and not a deer and in favor of that was well his airbag went off he was only a short way from home would have been safe to just pull over and check on things but he didn't he dr kept on driving even though he had poor visibility had opportunity to stop all of those things Tweedy says he was worried that, uh, you know, if he stopped the vehicle, he might not be able to start it again and these sorts of things. But the judge 
kind of considered the circumstances around it, but didn't articulate particularly that she considered the issue of willful blindness. So you can know that you've hit a, a person and then keep going. You can be uh, reckless as to whether you hit the person and, you know, then you can be willfully blind, which is where you basically, you know, convince yourself uh, in a sense that you, you didn't or you ignore obvious things that you should have clued into that makes you stop. All right, so that'll go back to uh, trial as well. The third issue was just an overall assessment of the evidence, particularly on the lighting conditions. There was evidence from a driver that went by just a minute or two after the collision who said that the lights weren't, you know, lighting wasn't an issue. And of course, the accident happened, the collision happened at a time of the night where it's quickly getting darker. And so the, you know, evidence from a little bit later when people were searching for the, for the little girl with flashlights and such, seemed to have led the trial judge to believe that it was darker than it may have been at the time, uh, 9.42, when the collision actually took place. So retrial is going to take place on this and a uh, difficult uh, situation for the family, everybody involved. Hard to say how much different the uh, trial will be on the next go around, but with that presumption, and all of a sudden we now have the, you know, presumption in place that he was impaired at the time of the collision, it's going to be more difficult for Mr. Tweedy to defend himself, I think, next time around. So we'll see when that comes along, uh, what uh, takes place. Okay, next situation. This is down in Kentville. This is a municipal government tri uh, situation, and uh, one that's been, I saw in the uh, the magazine formerly known as Frank Magazine, uh, was, had covered this story a few times. Uh, lots of turmoil in the Kentville uh, Town Council, from what I can see on the outside looking in. This uh, was two councillors, Andrew Zebian and Craig Gerard, both uh, town councillors. And the allegation was one of a conflict of interest on the part of uh, Craig Gerard. Okay, judge uh, uh, decision was from Justice uh, Gail uh, Gachalian and the lawyers. Lawyers for uh, Andrew Zebian was Richard Norman from Cox and Palmer. And for Craig Gerard, it was uh, John Shanks from uh, Stuart McKelvey. So two of the big regional law firms involved in this. So uh, that gives you a sense maybe of uh, the, the resources of the litigants and I guess their determination to, to put their best foot forward. So, okay, uh, Zebian owns a company called Mike's Clothing Limited. And Mike's Clothing Limited bought a vacant lot on Main Street in Kentville. Uh, referred to in the decision as the Robinson property. I assume that's a historical reference. So bought from the town on a conditional sale. To, the idea was that they were going to, Mike's clothing owned by Zebian was going to construct uh, apartments there. The conditions were to meet certain deadlines on construction. None of them were met. Uh, they were not only not met, but nothing was taking place. So you were supposed to have dug out and put footings in by a certain date, hadn't even dug out the, the ground yet. Some of this was during the pandemic. So anyway, the town council uh, granted three extensions. None of those extensions were met. And on the fourth request for an extension, council rejected it. Rejected it and then were asked a month later to reconsider their rejection and then didn't reconsider it. In other words, voted again to confirm 
that they were rejecting the extension. So then, therefore, the land would go back to the town. Well, uh, Zebian says that Gerard was in a conflict of interest because he and his family own other uh, commercial real estate in, uh, or not, com well, commercial and apartment, commercial real estate and apartments in downtown Kentville. So would have been a competitor of this new development and therefore had a pecuniary, a financial interest in seeing the development not take place and therefore was in a conflict of interest. So that's a big deal because in the Municipal Conflict of Interest Act, which is the only way to get rid of a councillor, all of these, uh, this came up during the uh, Rob Ford thing in Toronto, the only way to get rid of a councillor is for if, if they've voted or done something that puts them in a conflict of interest behavior, uh, all of those things missing, you know, that's, that doesn't work, but uh, conflict does. So section six says if it's a con uh, of the Conflict of Interest Act, if it's a conflict, the councillor must withdraw and not vote. And if, they, if the act is intervened, then a court can declare the councillor's seat to be vacant. So the question was, did Councillor Gerard have a pecuniary interest? The judge says no. Uh, the evidence was that Gerard's properties, the family's properties, were completely full. Uh, anytime there was a vacancy in any of the apartments, it was filled immediately. Different price range, more in the $1,000 range rather than 1500 as the new development was going to be. And so the, what the judge found was that the mere possibility of competition wasn't enough to establish that there was a pecuniary interest and a conflict. By the way, uh, Gerard not only voted for the purchase and sale agreement, he also voted for the first and second extensions of that. So it wasn't as though he was against it throughout or at every stage. Uh, so probably a predictable outcome, uh, but that was the outcome. We'll see what happens next if uh, Councillor Zebian, I mean, they seem very determined on these things if uh, there's an appeal there. The appeal, I guess, would be, well, is, you know, the mere possibility of competition in within the same industry. I mean, even if you're not directly, uh, even if things are going very well for one apartment building owner, doesn't mean that could, might not change in the future, but we'll see. Okay, a few other cases, and then I want to talk, the last one I want to talk about is the William Sanderson, but just a few other things that were catching my attention this week. One, I noticed that the uh, parents of uh, Dylan Ehler, Jason Ehler, I guess in particular, are taking the Truro Police Services to the Nova Scotia Police Review Board. This is a, an oversight body for municipal police forces, not the RCMP in Nova Scotia. Uh, just alleging that when their son went missing that the Truro Police Service didn't um, didn't communicate properly, didn't do their jobs. Uh, can't see that coming. I, I, just following the story a little bit, I, I don't see the Truro Police being found at fault there. It looked like, uh, you know, you just watch the news reports and the number of people searching and uh, in the water and doing everything they could to try to find that little boy. Uh, so tragic circumstance and one where probably uh, Jason Ehler should probably you know try to get on with his life and not keep bringing these kinds of things up but we'll see uh, what uh, the police board does with that it's a three person panel uh, that's making that decision across the country over out in BC the RCMP is being sued by uh, Narwhal magazine which is an online non-profit magazine 
they were there was a journalist covering a protest in the uh, uh, one of the First Nation reserves out there. There's some logging going on, uh, exploration. Anyway, the journalist was covering this and was detained and arrested for three days by the RCMP. And so Narwhal is now suing the RCMP for that uh, press freedom issue. So we'll be watching that closely. Uh, we suspect uh, the RCMP to be found at fault there. There's a lot of leeway for journalists when they're covering incidents like this, and uh, that wasn't respected. A couple of inquiry-related uh, sort of news. One is the James Smith Cree Nation, the uh, coroner's inquest into the stabbing deaths, uh, multiple deaths out in the James Smith Cree Nation. Uh, that is going to start, it's been announced in January of next year, 2024, so that'll be an extensive inquiry, I would think, uh, into the actions. You'll know, remember that uh, the Saskatchewan RCMP in that case did use the public alert system to let people know what was uh, taking place or what they knew. So that um, building off the, the Nova Scotia RCMP's failure to do so. And the last one is the, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, next one, Emergencies Act, the re inquiry. That report's going to be coming soon. Uh, who knows uh, exactly, we don't know exactly when, I don't think, but uh, that report is going to be coming down very soon about whether the government was justified in invoking the Emergencies Act in response to the Freedom Convoy, Truckers Convoy, whatever you want to frame it. Okay, last story I wanted to mention is something, uh, a Canadian connection, and there's been some uh, uh, sort of academic, at least, commentary, judicial commentary in, Nova, in Canada. Canadian uh, retired judges, including retired Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, other Supreme Court of Canada retired justices, law professors, lawyers across the country are very upset to about changes to the uh, judicial structure in Israel. So uh, Israel uh, has voted in a right-wing government of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, considered to be a right-wing government, who has brought in limits uh, not only on the Supreme Court's ability to uh, revoke laws that have been passed by Parliament, as happens everywhere else, any other uh, democracy, you know, the UK, Canada, the United States, Supreme Court has the ability to strike down laws made by the legislature if they're found to be unconstitutional. And not only that, so they're limiting the ability to strike down laws. They would have to have a unanimous decision from the 15 uh, justices of the Israeli Supreme Court to do so. And then more power for the government to then decide who becomes a judge. So you can see that as a real erosion of judicial uh, authority. And then really an erosion of democracy, because, I mean, democracy is more than just voting. It's institutions like the oversight that a Supreme Court can provide to make sure that an elected parliament doesn't go overboard to pass laws that are unconstitutional. So uh, we'll see where that takes us. Uh, just something to watch internationally there. Um, when things like this come up, uh, it seems like, you know, democratic institutions... For, uh, Democracies from around the world react when other democracies seem to be sliding back or sliding into undemocratic territory. All right, last thing I want to talk about uh, is the William Sanderson trial, which wrapped up uh, is is wrapping up today, Thursday, in a sense, with the uh, Justice Chipman giving instructions to the jury. By the way, that process of giving instructions, instructing, here's what the law means, here's what you should know, that takes hours in uh, even the simplest cases. So that uh, 
that'll be taking up a good chunk of the day on Thursday. Yesterday, there were closing submissions from the uh, defense lawyer, Alison Craig, and the uh, crown lawyer, uh, Kim McConney. Uh, not the same crown lawyer who was questioning, doing the cross-examination on uh, Sanderson himself, so uh, that was interesting. Uh, okay, so another point, I guess, usually at closing, you wonder, all right, which order they go in. If the defense doesn't call any evidence, the accused doesn't take the stand, it's just a crown case, then the crown goes first and the defense second. If the defendant calls evidence, takes the stand himself, or calls any other evidence, then it's the defense lawyer that goes first in closing arguments. It's kind of nice to go last. You do get a chance to rebut anything that the other side brings up in their argument if you're going first, but it is kind of nice to go second so you can react more to what the, uh, what the other side is saying in their closing submissions. So uh, the jury will be off deliberating. Hopefully they don't come up with a decision before I post this video. Uh, if they do, I'll certainly try to uh, make a note along with it. So uh, the defense uh, submissions has said that this was an unplanned uh, situation. He admits to killing Taylor Sampson in his apartment, but claims that it was done in self-defense, that they wrestled. Uh, Taylor Sampson was trying to get Sanderson's gun. Uh, Sanderson recovered the gun. Then Sampson went to lunge at him, and Sanderson shot him, killed him with one shot. The Crown suggests that this was a planned and deliberate uh, killing and was motivated by Sanderson wishing to get money from Sampson. Uh, he was supposed to be a $40,000 drug deal. Uh, Taylor uh, Sampson had the drugs, brought the marijuana to Sanderson. Sanderson only had $10,000 on him and was trying to suggest, he, he claims at least to Sanderson, that he had got the rest of the money by robbing a uh, another drug dealer. Anyway, there was a sort of a a cross owing of money that uh, Sanderson seemed to think was justification for him not having the 40000 But anyway, that was a, not a separate issue, but uh, not the main issue. To me, the, there's things about the Crown case that don't add up. Not really much money for uh, Sanderson, who's on his way to med school. You know, he's making $8,000 a month from his work and from dealing as it is. So to make, uh, you know, even twenty, thirty thousand dollars, if he was able to get that from the uh, from the other marijuana that he was going to thus have for free, in a sense, by kill killing Samson. You know, for uh, somebody that's going to be making half a million dollars in a few years' time and could get basically unlimited student loans as a medical student, that doesn't particularly add up. And also, it was a very bad plan. You know, there he is. You know, shooting somebody. Just going to be loud, draw attention, could have drawn police, uh, you know, in minutes. And there he is, you know, having to clean up an apartment. The other things that don't add up, uh, he appeared dazed afterwards, Sanderson did. He talked to his neighbors. He said he considered suicide. Uh, he was panicked. Not things you would expect if you had planned these things out. Uh, like I say, he had money and really stupid to throw away a career over this as his lawyer Allison Craig pointed out he had de-identified his apartment okay so that means he took anything out of the apartment to make it look like he lived there so that 
you know, if he was caught or if, uh, you know, Samson saw something there, Samson wouldn't know it was his apartment. He would just think it was a safe house that he was using for the purposes of the deal. Well, if you're planning to kill the guy, why do you care about any of that? You wouldn't bother de-identifying the place, taking out anything that has your name on it, if you're just going to kill the guy anyway, because he's not going to have anyone to tell. And uh, the other problem with the Crown's case is that Sanderson didn't turn off the surveillance equipment that he had in his hallway, and you know he turned it off at one point later on, but he didn't turn it off early enough to not capture Taylor Sampson arriving, and we see him with the duffel bag in the hallway outside of his apartment. So all of those things don't seem to add up to a planned and deliberate killing. Now, the question is, is the jury going to believe, though, the jury, so the jury may believe that there was nothing planned about anything, and so that would take it away from first-degree murder to potentially second-degree murder or manslaughter. Did, was there a uh, self-defense, though? That's the question that the jury's going to have. Are they, are they going to believe Sanderson about the self-defense? He didn't tell anybody immediately afterwards anything that would support the self-defense argument. He didn't talk to the neighbors and say, oh, my God, can't believe what happened. He lunged at me. I had to kill him. Uh, like, he didn't talk. None of those things happened at the moment that would have supported this. It's only him claiming now, after having gone through a first trial, after having, you know, had years to think about this, that he's developed, in a sense, this self-defense argument. So the jury may believe that there was no planning involved, but they may not believe that it was self-defense and come back with an included offense conviction on the, uh, you know, a second-degree murder or manslaughter charge. Wouldn't be shocked at that, but... You know, if Sanderson, uh, if he was compelling on the stand, you know, everything else about his story seems to add up in a self-defense uh, scenario. So the jury may just accept that and acquit him. So uh, it'll be very interesting. Now, if they, if they go for a, if they come back very quickly, it usually means that they've, they're going to convict him. If it uh, takes them a little while, and if they have any questions for the judge, that's probably leaning towards acquittal. So. We'll see how long they're out deliberating. In any event, uh, once that comes back, if you're following along, uh, uh, you know I'll, I'll try to post it somewhere as well. But I'm sure the news will be big once the jury comes back and uh, gives their decision. So I'll talk about that next week as well. Uh, surely they'll be done deliberating by then. I wouldn't expect it to take more than a day or so to uh, sort through some of this thing, these things, and the evidence, and uh, maybe have a verdict before the weekend a lot of the, the juries uh, they like to get the verdicts before the weekend or else they're you know can be sequestered over the weekend in a hotel away from their family and everything else so um would be expecting a verdict friday afternoon so we'll see about all that all right uh, that's it for this week i hope everybody enjoyed the content uh, we'll be back uh, next week with uh, some of these updates and others and then like i said you can catch me sunday night on the nighttime podcast with uh, jordan bonaparte at about quarter after nine uh, on youtube and then afterwards by uh, podcast apple and spotify okay that's it for now thanks everybody for watching uh, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time